I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode 338. And today in the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer, TV host, and whitetail expert, Greg Miller, to discuss his aggressive approach to hunting deer across the country. Alright, welcome to the Wired Hunt Podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today on the show, I'm joined by Greg Miller. And Greg's a guy I've wanted to chat to for quite a while now, so I'm excited this episode is happening. Greg is the author of multiple books, titles including uh, Aggressive Whitetail Hunting, uh, Bow Hunting Forest and Deep Woods, and Rubline Secrets. And he's written for many of the top hunting magazines, hosted several deer hunting TV shows, and in short, he's just done a tremendous amount in the world of whitetails and has been at it at a very high level for a long time. He just brings a tremendous amount of wisdom to the table. So having him on the show is a real pleasure. And in this conversation, I wanted to drill down into a variety of topics, such as what his form of aggressive whitetail hunting looks like, how times and tactics have changed since he first got into this whole whitetail thing, uh, what his unique perspectives are on utilizing rub lines, which he really focuses a lot on, um, why he uses deer decoys so much, which is pretty interesting, and and a lot more. So that's what we've got in store for you here shortly. It's good stuff. I enjoyed it. I hope you do too. But before we get to that, I did want to touch on a couple quick other things. Uh, first off, just want to give a big high five uh, shake of the hand, pat on the back to all of you who've been out there picking up trash on your shed hunting trips. I've been seeing tons of pictures with the tines and trash hashtag over on Instagram. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm damn proud of how many of you are getting out there and doing this stuff, cleaning up the woods. Uh, you're setting a great example and you're inspiring me and, and I'm sure a whole lot of others too. So kudos to everyone who's out there participating in tines and trash. Keep at it. I think it's pretty darn cool. Uh, speaking of thanks, one other thing I wanted to point out and just make a, make a point of doing is I wanted to thank all of you who've purchased a copy of my recently published book, That Wild Country. Um, as you've probably heard in some of the past episodes of the podcast, this was the most daunting project I've ever taken on, but the one that I'm pretty darn sure is the one I'm most proud of and putting that thing out into the world writing this book for years behind the scenes and then putting it out to you all. Honestly, it was a little scary. There were so many questions around, you know, is it any good? Will people enjoy it? Will people buy it? 
And since the initial launch, uh, you know, the, the answer has been a resounding yes. So many of you have shown your support by buying the book or getting copies for friends and family or listening to the audiobook or posting pictures on social media, posting your reviews on Amazon. It's, 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 it's all just been amazing and so appreciated. And I, I can't thank you all enough. Um, if you haven't yet picked up a copy yet, no worries either. You do have plenty of time still. You can grab paperback or hardcover copies over Amazon or wherever you like to get your books. Um, the audiobook is over on Audible. You can listen to it on your phone or your computer, uh, your iPad, whatever. Um, and if you're in Michigan or anywhere in the upper Midwest, I am doing another book signing coming up here pretty soon uh, in Lansing, Michigan on April 16th at Schuler Books. I'll be doing another event. So uh, stay tuned for more details on that. Um, and I guess... For those, if there are some people out there who are still on the fence or if you're just hearing about the book for the first time, I do have a couple quick reviews from Amazon I thought I'd share uh, just to give you a little perspective from some readers. Uh, so here I'm going to quote two of these uh, reviews. Let me see here. All right, quote, I am not a person that reads books often, if ever, but I loved this book. Mark Kenyon does an amazing job painting the picture of his travels and of explaining how and why our public lands came to be. A great piece of writing. End quote. And here's one other one that I liked. Um, quote, This book is a great collection of stories and history about our nation's public lands, many of which I've never seen firsthand. But I'll be damned if he hasn't inspired me to get off my ass and make an effort to both explore what I haven't and to take action to protect what we have. This is a great read that instills hope for bipartisan railing of defense for the beautiful lands we have. Highly recommend. End quote. So uh, that's pretty cool to hear. If, if this book can inspire folks to get out there and see these places and to try to stand up for them, that is my dream come true. So love, love seeing that. And uh, thank you to those who left those reviews. Thanks to everybody else who's written a review. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Buying the book, spreading the good word. It's, it's so appreciated. So. Just want to make a point to bring that up. With all that wrapped up now, let's shift from talking about reading over to listening. And in particular, let's listen to Greg Miller discuss aggressive whitetail hunting and a whole bunch more. All right, with me now on the line is Greg Miller. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's uh, it's it's exciting to be able to have this chat. I have followed your articles and you on on your various television appearances for a whole lot of years now you've been a huge influence on a lot of today's deer hunters and so i want to first and foremost thank you for for sharing everything you've been learning over the years and and secondly for anyone who's listening who has lived under a log and is not aware of the things you've been doing for decades now can you give us just a real quick cliff notes greg miller 101 well, I uh, I started writing for North American Whitetail Magazine years ago. Um, I guess it was probably 1986 that they purchased my very first article. And I was working construction at the time doing uh, concrete work. I was a concrete finisher. And then we, I started writing for them. And then a few other magazines took interest in my work and saw what I was doing. So long story short, within six years, I hung, hung up the construction work and uh, I and went to work full-time as a freelance outdoor writer, and I was doing seminars. Eventually transitioned and started doing videos for, like, Hunter Specialties Primetime Bucks, uh, Real Trees Monster Bucks. And then when the television craze kind of took off in the early 2000s, uh, myself, Stan Potts, and Pat Reeve uh, started North American Whitetail Television. 
um, did that for four years and then started my own show. Uh, first one was in pursuit, and then we transitioned into the hunt. And now I find myself at a point where I've, I've ran a lot of miles. I've hunted a lot of states, I think 22 uh, for deer. I've killed deer in 17 different states. Uh, I funded three Canadian provinces, killed big bucks in two provinces. So I, I got a little tired. So I pulled in my horns a little bit, started doing some magazine work again. And now am, uh, I'm going to make guest appearances on North American Whitetail Television, you know, three, four, five times a year. That's nice to be able to just have a little bit more of a slower pace. I got to believe it, it wears on you after so many years going nonstop, doing a, th- a thousand things. Um something that you also did along the way with all the TV and the articles and everything is you wrote some books. And in one of your books uh, titled Aggressive Whitetail Hunting, the opening line was, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure this is the quote, you said that there are no absolutes or guarantees in the sport of deer hunting. And I thought that was interesting to open a book in that way, right out the gate saying, hey, nothing is for sure. Nothing's guaranteed. There's no black and white here. Um, that struck me. Why did you choose to open your book that way? Why is that an important thing to you? I, I think it's, it's, and I don't think, I know it's because of, of a lot of past experiences with, with mature deer in a lot of different places. And, and you can, you can assume and you can believe that you have absolutely got a big deer figured out and, um, about the time you do, he'll break your heart. Um, we've all been down that road. And the other, the other reason I did that is because I, I wrote those books at a time where pe- when people were really, they still, some people still are very interested in shortcuts, guarantees, um, you know, something that they can use or they, they can employ into their hunting efforts that they figure is, is just going to guarantee success and it's just not going to happen. I mean, there, success isn't guaranteed in, in anything that I really know of, but um, deer hunting is a, it's a sure way to, um, you know, become frustrated is to expect to be successful. I mean, we all do, but I mean, you've got to keep that, that part of realism in the back of your mind all the time that just because you think you're doing everything right doesn't guarantee you you're going to be successful. And, and the books, you know, it was kind of partly the books too. It's reading these books doesn't guarantee success. Didn't didn't won't guarantee success. Um, so it's just a primer. You know, it's 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 a primer for for maybe helping you. If, I, I always tell people if I write a, a fifteen or eighteen chapter book and you learn one thing in there out of all those fifty seven fifty eight thousand words that I wrote for that book, if you learned one thing, then I've done my job. It definitely seems like it's still the case today that a lot of people, and, and I'm guilty of this in a lot of cases too, so I'm, I'm calling myself out here too. It's really easy to to read a lot of stuff, to, to get a lot of information. These days especially, um, there's so much information out there, whether it's a podcast or YouTube videos or a TV show or a magazine or a book. There's more information than ever before. It's so easy to to take all this information in but I think it's a lot harder to actually take something from that and put it into action. Um, how have you gone about actually learning something, whether it be from a resource you're reading or watching or from your own experience, and then actually taking that learning and put it into action? Like, Can you think of any like ways that you actually take action on or learn from these things? Because I think it's one of those things you just assume happens, but it's easier said than done. Well, first thing is 
I, I learned long ago and because I wasn't a good deer hunter. I wanted to be, but I wasn't. I was getting busted. I, I wasn't seeing the type of deer that I thought I should be seeing uh, with the way I was hunting an individual deer. I thought this deer, I've got him pegged. And I, I really, I had kind of developed a little bit of an ego as to, man, I know it all now. And, and the one thing I would really reinforce with, with people, regardless of how experienced they are as deer hunters, um, is never assume you know it all. And, um, but, but beyond that, then I started digging into when I wasn't successful, I, I became obsessed with trying to figure out why I wasn't. And that was a huge, huge key in my, you know, achieving a more consistent success rate was, okay, this deer duped me. He fooled me. He outsmarted me. But how? What, what did I do wrong or what did that deer do right that kept me from putting him on the wall? And I think that was a huge thing for me in probably, oh, I'd say going into the early 1990s, you know, a long time ago that um, I, I just knew I had to expand my my learning curve even more. I had to, I had to acquire even more knowledge, you know, and that was kind of tough for me to accept because I really did think I knew it all or I knew a lot. And I, it's never ending. You know, that market, it's, yeah. it's a never ending quest to become a better hunter. And, and you've got to have that attitude that you can always be better. Yeah. And that's, I think why so many of us love it so much is because it's never, you've never reached the finish line. There's always more to figure out. Um, well, I, amen. Amen. I mean, I, I'm, a, I love challenges. I was, uh, you know, I'm that type of person that, um, I don't, I don't get upset as much as I, I, uh, lift my chops and go, okay, you got me this time. Now I'm going to figure out how you did it and we'll see what happens the next time, you know, not lick your wounds, not feel sorry for yourself, but keep your confidence level up and just remember there's, there's always a next time for you. But when a deer screws up, there isn't another next time for him. You've got to make all the right choices. Exactly. You, uh, you, you talked about how so many of us get to a point where we think we've got to figure it out. And uh, oftentimes deer hunting can be very humbling when we're reminded frequently that we don't have it figured out. But I'm curious, you know, you've been doing this so long and you've been an authority for so long. Um, you've put a lot out there. You've told a lot of people, hey, this is a way to do it. Or here's what I think about this or that. Um, over all of those years now, when you look back, are there anything, are there any things that stand out as something that you've changed your mind on? Like, hey, you know what? Twenty years ago, I said it was this way, but guess what? I realized I was wrong. I think it might be now this way. Anything like that? Well, you know, along those lines, um, I, I will tell you that, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this. Um, if you've hunted any length of time at all, if you've got fifteen, twenty years under your belt, and Gosh, I got a lot more than that in the hunting world. Um, you, you know that, you know, we've really evolved as hunters. But but look what this what's happened with, with whitetails, with mature whitetail bucks, how they've evolved. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you, things change with us, with our equipment, with technology, with everything. And we've accelerated our abilities to the point that... I, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was really, really in fear of it becoming um, calculated and so not, I don't want to say automatic, but it was going to become um, substantially easier. 
And look what happened with the deer. The sharper we got, the more educated we got, the more technology we've involved into the sport, the keener the deer have become, I think. That's that's my honest opinion. So I, I think they are a prey animal. We're predators. Prey animals have been here forever. They've never all been wiped out 100%. Um, so I think there's always that part of it that deer will have something over on us, and I can't tell you what it might be, you know, the next thing that deer use to evade hunters or how they're doing things, but it's what keeps us all out there after them because, you know, people like us love a challenge, and deer hunting is still a challenge, regardless of how sophisticated it's become. Does it does it ever frustrate you how sophisticated it's become, or do you do you do you like it, or do you ever feel nostalgic for the way it used to be? Well, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old guy here, but of course I, <laughs> I'm a little, you know, I'm I'm a little concerned with with a lot of what's happened because I I honestly believe, and people can challenge me on this, but um, I I still love killing big deer, mature whitetails. I love figuring them out. But when we had to work five or six or eight or 10 times harder at doing that than we do now, then, you you know, you have to remember a lot of my formative years when I became, you know, when I acquired a name and, a, and a, I was established my credentials, there were no scouting cameras. There were, you know, we had topo maps and uh, aerial crop photos that we used. That was it. Otherwise, it was boot leather and a lot of hours. So, yeah, I, I would readily admit, would I, would I like to see it back the way it was in some degrees? But, Mark, I'm telling you, I'm kind of ate up with the scouting cameras, and <laughs> I like the Onyx maps, and I like yeah. certain things. I like my, I like my luxuries, too, so I'm not, I'm not going to be that grumpy old guy. <laughs> I guess there's a, a middle ground, right? <laughs> sort of uh, grumpy. There is. <laughs> yeah. my grump, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder though, do you think, do you ever think that you might have um, a special advantage over some of the newer, younger hunters for someone in your case who has that pre-scouting camera, pre-onyx, pre-technology background, but you also know how and can use those new technologies? Um, Or maybe another way to take this question would be, do you feel like those who came later, those who are so dependent now on trail cameras and our online maps and our cell phone cameras and all that stuff, are we overly dependent on that stuff and missing the boat on some of those foundational things that you learned early on? Yeah, it's back to the grumpy guy again. Yeah, I do. I really do. <laughs> I agree with you. I, I, I think that uh, there, there was a certain aspect of, of coming together with my hunting partners and walking all day. And, and I mean all day from daylight till dark with a, with a topo map folded up in your pocket and t- stop and, and a compass in your pocket, no cell phones and no, no scouting cameras. But where I've really seen those skills that I acquired a long time ago and honed where I really have seen that skill set shine is when I started doing a lot of out of state hunts where I might be at a spot for five to six days and then it was time to move on to the next spot or come home and then go out again where you had five or six days. And a lot of these were do it yourself hunts where we got some property hunt. We were shown the boundaries and then it was, you guys are on your own, you know, five or six days, you can have cameras, you can, you can have the technology, but you better have, you better be on those deer right out of the gate. You don't have two or three days to wait to see what shows up on the cameras. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's five to six days, find a big deer and kill them. And I, I really, excelled at that 
And, um, you know, it was all documented on film. And for the most part, it was a lot of self-scouting. And uh, so those old skills came back to, uh, to bless me um, from years ago when I really became a road warrior, you know, uh, during my, the hiatus of my filming career. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of those early experiences helped you kind of form this style of hunting that I've, that I've seen you refer to as, as aggressive whitetail hunting. You wrote this book titled Aggressive Whitetail Hunting. Um, and I've talked a lot about these different tactics that kind of fall underneath that um, type of whitetail hunting that you seem to have mastered. Can you, can you define that for me, what you mean by aggressive whitetail hunting and why that this style is so important to you? And maybe it's not anymore. I don't know. That was a long time ago that book came out. But um, what are your thoughts on that? No, that was that was a good connect here because um, what that book was about is kind of what I'm talking about now is the stuff that I that I reflected back on that would serve me well on my out of state hunts. Now, this day and age, was a lot of the stuff I talked about in aggressive whitetail hunting where. Back then, as I said, I was a full-time, well, we, we're seasonal here. So we get six months, maybe seven months of construction work, and we're laid off for four or five months out of the year. And that's back when nobody was doing scouting, nobody was doing season scouting. And we started doing that in the mid to late 80s and walking from, like I said, all-day walks, learning our hunting areas, where we should be the next year, um, but a lot of that stuff that we learned back then is exactly why I've been able to rack up such an impressive success rate on out-of-state hunts uh, with a very limited amount of time, Mark. So, yeah, there's some throwback stuff from, from that book especially that I feel strongly is, is still applicable today for people. So, so if, if someone then was saying, how do I become an aggressive whitetail hunter now, um, would you – would you be able to outline a few key things? Like, all right, if you focus on A, B, and C, of which we can go really deep into if we want, but if you learn to focus on these three things or, or something like that, would there be some way you could outline what this hunting style is for someone? Well, the, the main thing I think that, and, and back then I was, I was hunting the big woods of Northern Wisconsin, hundreds of thousands of acres of public land. And, but it was it was huge blocks of cover, so we we walked a lot. And the only way to learn that country was to walk it. There were no ATV trails. There weren't even ATVs. There weren't four wheelers back then. It was just it was legwork. And um, but being aggressive, the one thing that I've learned about about white-tailed deer, especially what I learned up in that big country in northern Wisconsin and Minnesota, was there are hundreds of thousands of acres out there that are available to the deer, but mature whitetails, especially if they're undisturbed, they use relatively small chunks of cover. You know, they don't, they don't use all of what's out there. They have their home ranges and they're, they're pretty much homebody. Was the biggest thing was we figured out that, you know, it was a matter and this applies everywhere. It's a matter, just as much a matter of eliminating, eliminating bad country as it is finding good country. You know, it's, it's, that can't be reinforced enough. So that the stuff you learn in the off season when you're doing this aggressive scouting, and the good thing about that time of year, 
is you can walk everywhere and anywhere and you have to worry about, man, I'm screwing this up for my future hunts. Deer have months to forget about being bumped or, you know, but in the meantime, you've learned a lot. And that's the one thing in talking with deer hunters, you know, I'm still doing some seminars at some of these bigger deer shows and has kind of gone away is, um, especially in, in cases where there's more real estate than just one square mile farming tracks or whatever, is people depending a little too much on technology, i.e. the cameras or, you know, those sorts of things, and really getting out there. And how well do you really, really know your hunting area? And be honest with yourself. Do you know every square inch? And postseason scouting, in my opinion, late or early winter scouting is time to do all that. When the deer seasons are closed, the deer are back in their core areas doing what they're going to do um, later on. So, so we're right about in that time frame right now as we're talking, late February, uh, early March when this comes out. How does someone do that? Because we talk about scouting a lot and there's certainly like a scouting 101 where someone probably thinks, okay, I'm just going to walk out there. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to walk the edges of the fields and yeah. I'm going to look for some big rubs and they're going to call it good. How do you take the neck, not just the next step, but the, the three more steps to, to scout like a pro? How do you scout like Greg Miller? What's What's going on in your mind when you're out there? What are you specifically doing that's different than your average schmuck on the street? Well, this is going to sound like kind of a shameless plug, but the book's not in print anymore. But this leads right into my third book. You, you talked about aggressive and proven whitetail tactics, but I've got a third book, Rubline Secrets, which actually was my best-selling book of all. And um, that book was written from from data that I collected information I collected, evidence I collected during the off-season where deer are making these rubs. Now everybody knows what a rub line is. You know, bucks rub along the routes they most prefer to use when traveling between bedding and feeding areas, period. They always have preferred routes. Those routes with the most rubs on them are usually the ones they use most often. You can figure out at that time of year, because you go out in the spring, you start walking, like you said, now until, you know, it starts to green up. You can walk every square inch. The other thing is people seem to assume they know where the big deer that they're hunting are bedding. And I did that for years and I found out it was a lot more to my advantage, way, way more to my advantage to figure out pretty much exactly where they were bedding. And even in the off season, when you're walking and you're looking at your hunting areas and you're going, well, I really can't see a big buck bedding here or here. When you find those spots and you go, this looks like the spot a big buck would lay. It's probably isn't. You might even bump the deer out of there that time of year, but it's not going to harm anything. It's, it's so far ahead of the season. But I'll tell you a quick story, Mark. Um, I was asked to do a, a uh, an article for uh, Bowhunter Magazine uh, recently. In fact, it just came out, and it was about spring scouting. And I, I talked about a tract of land I had here that I had leased, and I had it for three years. And you know me. I mean, I assumed I knew every square inch of that property mm-hmm. after that three years. And not only that, but I knew exactly what the deer were doing, where they were bedding, where they were traveling, where they were feeding. And I was in there the third year turkey hunting in the spring. And I, I found a big rub. And as I walk up on this big rub, I see another one in the woods. And long story short, I end up following this rub line from the bottom of this steep wooded bluff all the way up to the top. And up on top is a flat shelf. And I can tell you right now, as soon as I got up there, I went, this is a bedding area. 
and we had a couple really good bucks on the property that time. There were a few blowdowns around the edge of this. In the middle, it was it was kind of open, and there were deer beds and deer crap all over in there. And I thought, well, they're bedding in here right now. This has got to be where a couple of these big bucks are bedding. And you know, you know, fast forward to September of that year, and I killed a 150-inch 10-point that did exactly what I figured he would do. And I figured that out in the spring. And my son and I, Jake, was filming me. We went back in there, and second day of our archery season in September, I killed him, uh, like second hunt of the year from what I learned that spring. That's amazing when it works out that way. Yeah. And it doesn't always work out that way. It, it's, that's the other thing. I mean, people look at my, my successes and, and they think, wow, this is unbelievable. They have no idea. Well, some people do about the failures and, you know, you and I could talk about that probably all day about mm-hmm. there's going to be more heartaches than there are, um, pleasurable moments. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the first thing that people, you know, especially when they elevate their standards, they have to, they have to accept that you've just ratcheted up a notch where you're going to go after four or five and six year old deer. Hang on. Cause it's going to be a heck of a ride. <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> that is the truth. So with going to be a lot more down times than, than up times. I, yeah. You got the nature of the beast. You got to le- learn to love that, that, process that climb if you don't enjoy that then you're in trouble yeah there's something to be said about getting frustrated though yeah that's i mean that in a positive way because it just if you're like me like you i'm assuming that Mm -hmm. just makes you grit your teeth and go that's not going to happen again give me more figure it out yes (laughs) yeah so let's talk a little more of those rub lines um because it's funny i feel like the the idea of using rubs and really focusing on them has come in and out of style within the hunting community over the last two decades. There's been periods where it's been raved about and then people go back the other way and say, ah, forget them, focus on something else. And then they come back in and then they kind of come in and out. Um, right now, if, if, if I were to put my finger on the pulse of the hunting community, there's a whole lot more interest and trendiness around bedding areas than focusing on transitions and rub lines and stuff. So let's, let's zero in on the rub line thing, because maybe that's an area that we're not getting enough attention on for a lot of newer hunters. Um, when we're out there spring scouting and we come across a big rub, uh, how do you, is, is this, is the simple next step simply find the next one and walk to that and find the next one and walk to that? Or what goes through your mind when you're, st- when you're scouting and you're searching for rub lines, um, what happens and what are you looking for and how do you go about effectively scouting rub lines in a way that you could eventually use as a hunter? Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing is, is, is this a random rub? Um, is this a rub that was maybe made during the rut? This buck was here one time ground the crap out of this tree, marked it up and never came back? Or is it, is it part of an actual line? And, and that's really what you need to determine is, um, you know, usually a rub that's on a rub line will also be alongside a pretty good trail. And, um, and you know how bucks can be during a rut, especially mature bucks. They're cross trailing. They're, they're just running wild. Sometimes, sometimes they're on trails. Sometimes they're just meandering through the woods. But during non-rut times, for the most part, they stick to using trails. And, you know, there's such a big part of the archery season in almost every state in the country that takes place during non-rut times, which means we're hunting here in Wisconsin. 
we're hunting September, October, and and then November, uh, December again, post-rut, three months out of four months, we're hunting deer that are not rutting. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to pin my hopes just on a, you know, 10 to 14 day window, 21 day window in November. Yeah. I, I want to be on the big deer right away. But the scouting thing, yeah, it's, it's walking to see if this is a random rub, if, it, if it's part of a line. Every buck rub's different. Some of them are rub crazy. Other ones rub once in a while. You know, those were tough ones to figure out back in the old days. And um, But getting back to something you said, Mark, about the rub thing kind of comes and goes and the importance of it. And I think that's in great part due to scouting cameras because now they can just find a rub and put up a camera and maybe a scrape and they don't really have, people don't have to do much investigating and that camera will probably tell them if that's a spot they need to hunt or if not. So they, they don't really think that the rub really, the rub, one rub, they put the camera over it, but they don't really know the significance of rub lines. So I think it's kind of gone out of style and out of fashion simply because people don't consider it to be that important because of what they can learn with their scouting cameras. And that's, it's actually true. It do really you, is. Do you feel like you miss out on anything though? Um, is there, uh-huh. is there some added benefit to taking it that next step? Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about, you know, the use of scouting cameras, especially is kind of, um, made hunters a little less aggressive, a little less active. Um, yeah, I was just talking to the editor of North American Whitetail about this a few days ago about, um, you know, and if, if four cameras don't show you what you want to see, then put out four more. And we talked about how harmful that's become to hunters' chances when, especially early season when deer are on top of their game or during the October lull when big bucks are really, you know, reclusive and, and, and shy and, and, and uh, suspicious the more times you go in and out, whether you're just scouting, uh, checking cameras or whatever you're doing, the more harm you're doing because human sense is human sense. But I, so that's why I think it's, it's kind of in their best interest. And you can do this during the off season, at least figure out some of the preferred routes that bucks were using the year before, because they'll use them again. And then the next generation of bucks will use them and so on. And it's, we've proven that a lot of people have. You know, you get a good spot. A good spot's a good spot. You'll kill big deer out of it maybe fairly consistently because that's just the nature of big deer to want to gravitate to the same spots that the deer before them did. It's just their nature. They're They're for a reason. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Yes. So, what about this uh, old adage that uh, big rubs mean big bucks? Have you found that to be true or false? Very true. For the most part, if they're not if they're not big in the antler department, because I killed a, I've killed a bunch of big woods deer that because of the lack of agriculture, but because of the lack of very much nutrition, these are deer that were 200 pounds field dressed plus, up to 220 some pounds, you know, are four and five year old deer and they were 130 maybe 135, you know, they were just so so in the antler department, but those deer rubbed on big trees, and. They didn't have, not all of them had giant racks. And I killed some. I got a 200-inch non-typical I killed here in Wisconsin during late season um, years ago that that deer, when he'd show up on our farm and he wasn't there very often, he'd come and go. Um, he'd run on trees almost as big as, you know, I mean, talking almost as big as my lower leg, my calf. I mean, up into my thigh area, giant popple trees he'd rub on. Wow. Whenever he came on, he'd go to this one area and he'd rub on those trees year after year. We also, with the advent of scouting cameras now, we've been able to document that little bucks will rub on big trees. Big bucks will rub on little trees, but for the most part, if you find those big gagger-sized rubs we all like to find, it's a, it's a pretty safe bet that that's a really good deer. As you were as you were talking about those big rubs that you're finding in the big woods, it it just brought a question to mind for me, which is, do you find there's certain habitat types where rub lines are more important? I'm wondering if, for example, in pretty open country like Kansas, maybe there's not a whole lot of cover. So your travel corridors are pretty obvious. They have, they're going to most likely want to follow these little fence rows and things like that. Uh, While in a big wood situation where it's all this homogenous, big open timber, it's, I've hunted a lot of that stuff too, up in Northern Michigan. And a lot of times I'm just at a loss for trying to figure out how these deer are traveling through an area. But is it in a scenario like that where rub lines are especially important? You, you, um, you hunted, if you hunted up there, you hunted country that was fairly similar to what I, I used to hunt in Northern Wisconsin. And yeah, um, there were some, there were some, uh, aspects of deer behavior or, or travel patterns that we had on. Um, they, they love walking swamp edges where they're, they're on the, they're on the dry ground, they're on the high ground, but they're like one or two jumps away from those, those six thick tamarack mm-hmm. and willow swamps. Um, because big deer like, that sense of security. If they're threatened, they got two, one or two bounds and they're in the thick stuff. Those were hot spots. We also found that just ridge bottoms, um, 
sometimes along the sides of the hills, very seldom did those deer, big deer especially, did we find where they were walking right down the top of the ridge. And if they were, it was probably a nocturnal travel route. Um, they just seemed to want to be where they could be closer to thick cover. And, um, you know, the older the deer get, the more, the more secure they want to feel. So there, there are some things to look for. Um, we, we find, you know, two or three year old slashes, you know, where they come in and they log off an area and just clear cut it. And then it comes back in that thick regrowth after about the fourth or fifth year where it's, you know, it's like the hair on a dog. It's so thick, but deer would walk the edges of those things too. They want to be on the little more open side where they can see and use their eyes for travel, but they're only one bound away from being able to jump back into that slash. And, and there was a lot of logging going on up there well, towards the end of my big woods hunting career, but we learned to use it to our advantage because the deer would be in there to feed and then it would eventually get to, to a point where it would also serve as cover and food and they were hunting hot spots, those slashes when they were about four or five years old. And would you hunt those kinds of spots right inside of them, or would you hunt the downwind edge during the rut and try to catch bucks cruising that edge? Or what was what was the right way typically to hunt it? Well, you know, back then we were tree stand hunters. We occasionally would build a ground blind, but there were no pop-up blinds. So we were doing just exactly what you said. We'd, we'd hunt those, those edges a lot, uh, whether it was a swamp edge or a slash edge. And, uh, as the time drew near, do a fairly aggressive amount of calling, you know, out into the slash or swamp to try and get them just get out in the, you know, into the area where we could get a shot at them. Cause I'm talking mostly bow hunting now, but we did employ some of that stuff for gun season too. Cause we can have gun ta- a gun tag and an archery tag here in Wisconsin. Um, so we're blessed that way. We can have, we can shoot two bucks a year here. Um, back on the, back on the rub thing. You you talked about how how these days a lot of people will see a rub or a scrape and just throw a trail camera up um, and never kind of take it to that next step. Do you now have do you have a way that you that you use trail cameras in conjunction with rub lines? Like, is there a, is there a best way to do both? Um, I'm curious just because like, I personally use a lot of trail cameras on scrapes, but I do not often factor rub lines into where I'm setting my trail cameras. Maybe that's a missed opportunity. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on using that? Unless you have a, a clear, I mean, putting them over scrapes is, listen, those are like the communication centers for all the bucks within a given core area, not just the buck. You know that. I mean, you might get you're going to get pictures of numerous bucks working the same scrape. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. But then you have to figure out now, and, and you don't get a picture of a buck like you'd like to get. So you have to start wondering, especially if you know there's a big deer there, is this not a spot he's comfortable visiting? Is there a reason he's not coming to this scrape? But uh, other than, you know, than a big track on a scrape, that's pretty much guesswork. But when, you, when you're just scouting and, and take the cameras out of the equation, and you're just looking at sign, I would rather trust, unless there's a, a track in a scrape that's, you look, take one look at it and go, this is a giant deer. This is a giant deer. I would rather trust to, you know, scouting and sign interpretation to big rubs than scrapes. That's not to say I don't hunt over scrapes. I'm like you, I, I, I do both. But um, the, the rub thing, it's, it's curious to note that, um, you know, I, I still do it a lot. I, I put them, I, I 
kind of, you know, trash scouting cameras, but I'm very dependent on them to be honest, like, like we all are. And I, I'll put them up and I'll put up, you know, at any one time here, I'm, I might have six to eight to 10 out. Um, and what I'm trying to figure out is what the deer are doing at certain times, you know, rubs are, are definitive. They're, they're valuable bits of, of sign, but you, you have to figure out that, like you said, is this part of the line or is this just a random rub? Um, it depends on the time of year, but um, I think I'd rather base most of my hunting efforts around rubs, big rubs than, than, than scrapes. Scrapes are a good indicator of buck presence. Um, don't get me wrong. That's a good place for people to start trying to get a census of what's going on in their hunting areas. Mm -hmm. Usually you'll start finding scrapes before you start finding quantities of rubs. I think you'll agree with that. Yeah. Especially the more bucks there are within a given core area, the more, the more competitive they are, the more competition there is, there's going to be more buck sight, even in September. Yeah. Even in, especially in October. Now you talked about how, how scrapes are communication hubs. What about signpost rubs? I've, I've seen you write about signpost rubs. How do those differ from just a regular random rub? And, and when you find one of these signpost rubs, you know, what does that, how does that mean diff, something different to you or how do you act differently after finding that? Well, you know, if, if, if you watch a big buck make a scrape and I've had the opportunity to, you know, to do that many times, the first thing they do usually when they walk up to a, especially a, a, a rub that's already opened is they'll smell it and then they'll usually lick it. So now they've smelled it to see who's been there. They mark it with their saliva. Then they start rubbing it. And if you watch them as they're rubbing, they'll spend almost as much time rubbing their forehead, their pseudoeperous gland on their, in their forehead. Um, is that the pseudoeperous gland? Yeah. Um, Anyway, they'll spend almost as much time rubbing that on the rub as they do their antlers because that's the clear indication of who they are. That's how they mark these things, you know, so that when they walk away after they're done, and, and people will tell you years and years ago when we first started, started doing the rub line thing, we'd always find hair in these rubs in the bark, embedded in the bark. And we were like, I wonder what that's about. Well, eventually I got to know Gordon Whittington from North American Whitetail and James Kroll, of course. James is a very good friend of mine. And, uh, they, they explained to me the whole process of that and, and why there was, there was hair. It was from the deer's forehead, just from their head, but they grind that gland into the bark to, to scent market. So there's a lot more goes on with rubs than I think even now and with everything that's out there, all the information that people understand. Oh yeah. You could, you can, but of course that's, that's only one aspect of, of everything we're talking about too. There's a lot more to this than just the rubs and rub lines. It's it's definitely fascinating though because it's one of those most visual things. You know, when you go into the woods, there are few things that can get your adrenaline pumping more than coming across a big fresh rub. Um, oh other than God. actually seeing a deer, other than seeing a deer, that big fresh rub is about as visual, visually stimulating as you can get out there. And that's exactly what got me so interested in them you know, years and years ago, the very first article I wrote for North American whitetail. And I wrote it in 1986 and it appeared in uh 1987 issue was on rubs using rubs and rub lines for killing trophy deer. And up to that point, I don't recall ever seeing a strategy article that relied entirely on using rubs and rub lines as a way to ambush big bucks. Now I'm not just, I'm just bringing that up because 
there was a lot of stuff that was misunderstood about him, I think, prior to that, that we had done personal research about and had the, had the uh, results to back it up. Um, and so that's why I'm I just gaga. I'm still gaga about rubs. And there's, <laughs> there's nothing, like you said, walk, like walking through the woods and looking up ahead and seeing a big tree just all scarfed up. Oh, that big you orange slash. Yeah, it's, you can't wait to get there. You almost find yourself running towards it. Yeah. <laughs> what What about this? You know, these days, uh, I don't know, the last maybe 10 years or so, it's become quite popular to use and to create mock scrapes. Um, a few people, I've, I've seen a few folks here and there make mock rubs. Have you ever done that, looked into that, considered that as something that could be a useful tool? Absolutely, because they, they relate to them almost as much visually. They see those things too. You know, deer have excellent vision other than maybe not seeing, you know, the color scheme that we see, but they, they have very keen eyes and bucks are inquisitive. If they're, if they're not pressured, if they're just being themselves, and if I'm not mistaken, there's some, um, isn't there some scent companies that are making the um, forehead gland? Yeah, I think, uh, I think so. Yeah. So it's feasible. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, I love, I personally love um, making mock scrapes and doing that. And I've made mock rubs and they're just something pretty cool about doing something yourself. And you say, this is where I want a de- big deer to appear. I want a big deer, just doing something like that and having a big deer respond to it, I think is cool. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like calling coyotes, yeah. you know, where you can fool them to the point where you can kill them. Yeah, it's uh, calling in turkeys, uh, grunting yeah. in a buck, bugling an elk. Any way that you can proactively fool an animal into falling into your trap is, is pretty uh, satisfying. Yeah, yeah. So I do it every year. I, I, uh, I've i always dinked around with the, with the, the, the mock scrapes, and you always get response. You know, it's just a matter of what, what animals are responding, and I've had some that you know, I've got scouting camera pictures of some incredible bucks that I never ended up killing, but it's so cool to, to look at those pictures and go, I made that scrape and look what I got here, yeah. you know. So what's the scenario when you would do the mock rub? What, like, would you, would it be similar to why you'd make a mock scrape? You want a buck to maybe stop there for an extra second so you can get a shot or to stop in front of a trail camera? Is it that kind of utility or do you use them in a different way? The thing with the mock mock scrapes is then after he works it, after a buck finds your scrape, then he works it and then you rework it again and add a little more scent. And then he comes back and, you know, he figured out, I'm going to keep coming back here because I want to meet this guy that's monkeying in my scrape. And same with rubs. I think you, you, you create them. It's partly to try and get a deer to start rubbing on it too. But the next time he comes through that area, I can almost assure you, he's going to visit that rub again. They just have to. That's the nature of the beast with them. They, they're they so big on, on you know, scent-based communications and, and visual communicate, uh, communications with, like, the rubs and trying to find out who else is in the area. Um, there's probably a lot more of that goes on than actual confrontations where they're just constantly smelling and finding out who's going where and who's doing what. So... Um, I've never actually shot one off a mock scrape, but I've sure had them respond to them. Do you think that this is the kind of um, the kind of idea that might help in? Well, let me let me say this a different way. I've got a scenario. 
And I think a lot of people probably have a scenario somewhat like this where they hunt a small property and for one reason or another, the deer are typically on the neighbors and they only come over onto their side, you know, let's say one out of six times and you can't improve the habitat because you don't own it. So you can't plant food plots. You can't make some big change to the habitat. So you're stuck trying to just hope that that buck's going to come across your way. Would this be one of those things you could do to proactively try to get him to come to your side a little bit more by getting kind of aggressive with creating mock scrapes and mock rubs on your side? And of course, you got to be careful to not overpressure it by doing that. But let's say you can do it in a smart way and create this false sense of competition that then encourages this deer to come check out your neck of the woods more often. Is that is that like a reasonable way to use this? Yeah, and, it's, and, and you've probably done it, and I've done it, and I've had you know so so success with it. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's um it, it sometimes can be really hard to lure a deer off adjoining property or off property you don't have permission to hunt onto your property. You know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier in the podcast about deer know where they want to be. They, they're living because they really feel comfortable there. Um, but I would say along those same lines, though, if you can get him to come over and investigate just one time, I have a, I have a very strong feeling that he's going to come over and investigate again, whereas he may not have done it had you not had that mock scrape there or that mock rub. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't hurt anything as far as the effectiveness of it. Uh, I haven't had great, you know, deer are where they are because they want to be there. And other than rut, good luck trying to get them to, to leave that safe environment where they, they feel safe and, you know, jump the fence and come over onto your environment. Yeah. So, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah. The same token, it doesn't hurt anything to do it. I want to, I want to rewind, um, I want to go back to something we started talking about earlier, kind of a pivot off of the rubs and uh, back to this idea of the aggressive whitetail hunting. Because I think that this this idea we just talked about uh, might be considered something aggressive uh, because you're proactively doing something to try to you know change the future behavior of a deer. Um, you wrote this book, Aggressive Whitetail Hunting, and that was, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, something like that. Um there's more than that. <laughs> okay. So do you think that since that point, as technology has changed, as you've changed, as you've hunted more and more and seen more and more uh, situations, have you become more aggressive or more conservative as a hunter? What's your trajectory been? That's a real good question. It depends on the situation. You know, as I was talking about earlier, if I'm out of state and I've only got five or six or maybe even seven days to get something done, I'm going to be the same old aggressive Greg Miller, but I'm going to do it. It's safely aggressive or, or, uh, you know, it's, you've only got so much time. You can't be doing stupid things like walking through any place you think a big deer might be bedded, but you've always got to be out there doing something. You know, we've got two places we hunt early season, Western South Dakota and, and Northwest North Dakota. And we do those hunts back to back. And we do our own thing, beginning to end. We got six days in South Dakota and we got seven days in North Dakota. And there's not much time where we're sitting around, you know, shooting the breeze. We're out and about doing something. Um, If it's just walking and exploring um, and while we're hunting, glassing 
you know, because the country lends itself well to do that. But we're always doing something. We take a short break for lunch, maybe in the middle of the day, you know, but mornings and evenings and afternoons, we're doing something. Um, if it's moving cameras, it's checking cameras, it's uh, uh, scouting, you know, which still is, there's a lot of land, 7,000 acre ranch we, we hunt in, in North Dakota. We've hunted it quite some time. I've still never been on every bit of it. So there's always something to do. So, yeah, I mean, around here, if I'm hunting here, um, I may not be quite as aggressive, but that's because I've got these deer kind of figured out, Mark. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know where I should be and when I should be there, and I know where I shouldn't go. And, you know, that might change during the season when deer start doing different things, though, too. But I've got that all figured out. But when, I, when I'm when i a road warrior, I'm going to be a lot more aggressive then than I, than I am here quite honestly. Yeah. I feel like that is one of the important steps as a deer hunter you have to take when you eventually get to a point and and it's you never get there completely. I think it's a it's a, a hill you're constantly walking up. Um but but trying to be at a place where you know the right times to be aggressive and the right times to not be. Um it seems like that's a really fine line you have to walk as a deer hunter because when it's time to strike or when it's time to get aggressive, if you, if you don't, you miss your opportunities. If you do at the wrong times, you blow it out, you screw it up. Um, it's a real tricky balance. You have to walk for, for someone who's relatively new, who doesn't have years and years of the, of the mistakes and the lessons learned. Are there any kind of guidelines you can give us as to, Hey, this kind of situation is go for it. This is go time versus this is hang back and be a little more careful. Um, I know that's pretty broad, but are there a few examples you can provide folks that might help illustrate that? Yeah, it is, it is a broad stroke. It's, it's, um, during the early season, I, and, and, you know, like the, the October lull when bucks, they just go underground, but boy, they have, they're sharp. They're not being distracted by hot does or they're not rubbing much. They're not scraping much. I'd say better air on the safe side, early season, you know, because of the, the foliage and everything and the woods are so much thicker, that's a tough one to call too because you really, but you might get away with more. You might be able to jump a deer that time of year where you'll hear him or you jumped him, you busted him, but he's not going to leave the area. That's one thing good about early season. They're, they're just such homers then. It, it would take quite a bit, I think, to, to really push them out. But I think during the, the late pre-rut and the rut, I think people should just be, if your gut tells you to do something, I really trust my gut. And I think most good hunters, most people that spend quite a bit of time in the woods or more than average amount of time in the woods have got that sixth sense where they know when they should be out there. They know when they should walk certain places and they know when they should back out and just maybe leave things alone. I think it really does come down to that. If you feel like you're maybe pressuring an area too much, I will almost certainly guarantee you that you're pressuring that area too much. Yeah. If it becomes a suspicion in your mind. Right. Because so we, it's just a gut. we're probably always a little bit biased in our favor too. So if you get to the point where you're starting to think maybe you're doing it, you probably were over pressuring it a week, a week earlier because <laughs> you want to give yourself very, a, a break. That's very well put. That's it's very well could be the case. And I've written that almost word for word. If you feel like you're pressuring an area too much, you have been. Yeah. More than likely have been. Yeah. 
So, so are you? I'm not sure if you are aware of this um, kind of trendy type of hunting or not right now. But there's a there's a growing uh, collection of hunters who are really into getting very aggressive with their hunting in October, in particular around the October lull, by mm-hmm. finding buck beds and buck bedding areas and getting in really tight to them with pretty mobile hunting tactics. Um, so kind of doing the reverse of what you were talking about there. Have you, have you, are you, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's, it's something that's pretty high risk, high reward. And I don't know if that's something you've considered or tried or done it and screwed up enough that now you don't do it. Um, any thoughts on, on that tactic, that idea? I, uh, it's one of those been there, done that. I actually have. And, and I, in a way I feel kind of not bad about it, but it was, it was at a time when, I was writing, just be careful. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I had a big deer that I just, like I could kill in early season. I was so confident that I knew exactly where he was bedding. This was in, this was in Northern Wisconsin in the wilderness. And I got in so tight on that deer that I actually heard him stand up and shake, you know, when they stand up and they shake themselves. Yeah. And I thought, what was that noise? And like, three or four seconds later, I saw some movement and he's just was standing. He was in some thick stuff, but I made out an eye and then an antler. And I heard, actually heard that deer cause he shook again then. And I went, that's what I heard. That's, that's how close I was. Him. I didn't kill him, but, um, only because he took the wrong runway. If you know what I mean? It was the right runway for him, the wrong runway for me. But, uh, so I think it's one thing about doing that, that time of year, it, it's, you know, some people might think it's a little controversial that you should never try and get in close to those deer tight on them. Like, like we were talking about, but other than doing that, I, I don't know how you'd kill them and it's probably worth it. And I, that time of year, if you bust them out, I don't think they're going to leave the county. You know, I don't, I don't think they're going to, they're probably only going to run a little ways because it is so thick. You've got that going for you. And then just, probably forget about it as long as you back out and give them time to forget about it. Don't go right back in there. So, so you're saying that it is something that if you're willing to swing for the fences that you think it's, it's not a bad idea if you're willing to take that risk. I, I, I don't, and it, but I would, I would on the, right on the heels of that, I would, I would say that people should have a real thorough understanding of their hunting area, exactly how it lays. Um, um, be, you know, people that are very familiar with their hunting areas probably stand a better chance at, because they know what their deer are doing at certain, just about every time, you know, during the year, um, summer, spring, fall, winter. Those people have more of an advantage because I think pretty much, you know, and they've hunted the same tract of property for however long, um, they would stand a better chance of, of, killing a deer in that situation than people that are just kind of doing it by guesswork. And quite honestly, Mark, I think you'll agree. There's a lot more people that are that knowledgeable about their hunting areas now than there was 20 or 25 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's become an obsession and it's a good obsession. Yeah. Certainly there are a lot of worse things I like to tell my wife. <laughs> very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really a really random little aside here, but it is related to hunting in October. Um, I read somewhere once, I think this might've been in a recent article, 
that you have really keyed in on freshly fallen maple leaves. Can you talk about that? Is that something that we should be paying more attention to as, as something to hunt around for small parts of the year? Well, I'm telling you, it's, it's, I wrote that piece years ago. I think I rewrote it. I, yeah, I rewrote, I didn't rewrite it. I used that analogy again um, for an article for North American whitetail this last year. And we have a lot of the area I used to hunt in Northern Wisconsin, and even around here in the farmland, we have a fair number of maple trees, a lot, a lot of maple actually, but it's one of those things when they're falling, you better be out there hunting and maples lose their leaves pretty, rather quickly. And the sugar content in those leaves is what drives it. I talked to James Kroll about, it, and he said they're high in sugar. So it's an energy source for them. You know, it's, it's a delectable food. But it's not a main food, as I wrote in that article. It's, it's one of those, what do they call them, ice cream foods, I yeah, guess they call yeah. it. But they, boy, they're going to eat them. Every time they pass through that area, they're going to go right to those trees that are dropping their leaves, and they're going to they're garbage up on them. Do you think they'll go out of their way to hit it? Like, well, oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. I've seen deer suddenly appear. And for years, when this was going on, and we'd find this hot sign in these certain areas, we see the microscope. Well, we didn't know at the time that hot sign was three or four days old and it was already over. They had been doing this probably for a week. By the time we found it, it was over, but we hung stands. and Not only didn't we see any big bucks, we didn't see deer. They, they just come in there for, tell those, once they hit the ground, those leaves that lay there for a while lose the sugar content and then they, they're not delectable anymore. But boy, when they're, as they're falling, literally as they're falling, I strongly urge people to, check that out. If you've got known areas of, of maple stands in the, in the woods you hunt, it's, it's one thing that, like you said, you, you've never really heard of it before, but it's, it's a fact. Yeah. I like that idea of, of, it seems whenever you can find a food source that is, that's limited, that's there for a very short time period, you get this disproportionately high rate of deer use because they know it's there for just a little bit of time. It's it's like when the ice cream tr- truck shows up, you know it's going to be there for 30 seconds, so every damn kid comes running in because they know that's their only chance to get it. <laughs> that's a good analogy. I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's, it's a timing factor. You tell me those kids don't know when that ice cream truck is coming. And they know. They got it timed, just like the deer. Nope. They're in their element. They, they know exactly when those maple leaves are going to fall. They know exactly when the acorns are going to start dropping. Yeah. So it's just a timing thing. And that's, that's one of those things, too, that I learned on my own pretty much a long time ago about the maple leaves. And it was, it was a bit accidental, but, you know, I never forgot it. Yeah. Yeah, those things, uh, I think that's another thing that seems to separate your average deer hunter or hunter of any kind, but in this case, deer hunter, um, separate them from from someone who's able to really, really be successful is noticing those things. The fact that you noticed that, you keyed, you asked yourself, why did something happen or why did I see these deer? Or what were they doing here? And you noticed that was what they were feeding on and then you stored that away in your mind for the future. I don't think that's as common across a lot of people. I know that I've had to almost proactively force myself to be more proactive. I have to like remind myself all the time to pay attention to everything and then ask questions about everything and then think back on it again to make sure I'm learning from that and taking action on it. Um, That seems to be like the process, at least that I figured out, that seems to be the process of getting better is, is really observing, thinking, and then acting. Um, 
are there are there any other examples from your years of hunting that you can think of where you had like an aha moment in the woods where you had one of these observations or watched something happen and we're always like, oh wow, that that's why this happens. Or, oh wow, I need to change what I'm doing now because of this. Have there been any, any other kind of epiphanies like that for you over the years? Well, I mean, there, there's been, there's been stuff like that to be specific about, you know, it came from a lot of years of just finally paying attention to deer. And when does and fawns and small bucks would come by, not going, God dang it, where's the big deer? Yeah. I'd watch those deer. I, I wanted to know everything they were eating, why they were there, um, where they were going, how they were acting, which trails they were using, even though they weren't target animals. But back to the maple leaves real quick. I remember my brother, Mike, my older Mike, when I hit on that pattern and, and killed a couple of pretty good bucks doing it, he said, how'd you ever figure that out? And it, it goes right to what I just said. I said, well, every time I'd see those deer come through there for the last few years at the same time every year, they were always there and they would eat those maple leaves. And then I told him about, you know, finding maple trees after that and setting up on them. And it was already too, because there was a lot of buck sign, a lot of deer sign around them. And it was already too late. They weren't eating them anymore. So I said, I figured out the best time to be there hunting those deer was when the leaves were dropping. Um, I'm sure there have been some instances where I've seen deer do something or, you know, it's always been my goal. Once I, once I decided that this is what I want to do, I want to be a very successful big buck hunter back in the day and age when it wasn't cool. You know, there, North American white I think was in its infancy, the magazine. And, uh, so that started drawing a little more attention to the sport, but, um, I, there were things I learned along the way. Mushrooms. I killed, I killed a, a really good buck in Northern Wisconsin one year that, you know, there's a certain ridge that I hunt. There's a lot of downed logs and the deer were in there eating the mushrooms off those <laughs> logs. But the university of Wisconsin to put all this in perspective about different foods and certainly not all these foods are preferred, but the university of Wisconsin did a study years ago on white-tailed deer in our home state here. And they documented deer eating like close to 320 or 330 different items while they were observing them. Wow. So now when you put that in perspective of what we think we know about what deer like to eat, yeah, corn, soybeans, you know, alfalfa, acorns, browse, we're still a long ways from 300. You know, so there's some of those foods they may just pick and, you know, at and they eat it, but they documented it. But it does put it in perspective that it goes far beyond what we consider to be the normal foods or primary foods for whitetails, I think. And, and so much of that is seasonal, like the maple leaves. There's, there's other things that, you know, like certain brows, um, certain leaves, but if you watch a deer walk through the, the woods, they're always nibbling on something. And I just pay attention to what they're nibbling on. Usually. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via 
convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. You know, what they're eating is so important in the early season and a lot during October and a lot in the late season in December. But if there's any time of year maybe where it's not quite as important, it's probably that pre-rut and rut time period. Um, and tell me if you think differently. But I think on average it's a little less important, at least at that time of year. Um, kind of falling back on that theme of your aggressive mantra or your aggressive approach to hunting once we get to that time period we're past the october lull we're into the pre-rut and the rut that's when most people get aggressive um what does getting aggressive at that time look like for you well what what are the bucks doing that time of year they're kind of nosing around looking for ladies right yeah what are the does doing food and cover there you go yeah yeah it's it's yeah, there are some places that, you know, you get these cruising bucks. You get, you can have areas that during the rut when the bucks are cruising, there are certain areas they, they use year after year, generation after generation that are just absolute cruising spots. But food still plays a very important role in the rut, but only because then you're, you're actually hunting antelope deer, which I hate. <laughs> I think we all do because, you know, we get picked off way more by does and fawns and small bucks than we do mature bucks. Let's be honest. It's that old nanny doe. Oh my gosh. You know, and more big bucks have been saved by does than we care to talk about or even think about. Mm-hmm. I can think of dozens that have, you know, survived just on, on my behalf because of a, a nosy or suspicious doe, but it's still a food thing. It's just that the bucks are, I think the mature bucks are changing the way they're relating to their surroundings. Yeah you know, to get to where the does are. And during a rut, especially, you know, they'll just, they'll come into a feeding area and maybe they'll just circle to the downwind side. They're not interested in eating. They'll just circle to the downwind side, sniff out the animals deer that are there and go, nothing interesting here. I'm going to move on. And we've all seen that, you know, when they're cruising, walk, 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 stop, sniff the ground, sniff the air, walk, walk, walk over and over again. They're just cruising. They're not interested in eating. They're just interested in one thing. 
and they know where to go to find that thing. The the pretty standard approach, if I had to oversimplify what the you know hundreds of different deer hunters I've talked to say, if I could just boil it down to the simplest of things, you would say maybe on average, most guys or girls during the rut are hunting either downwind of bedding years or food sources or some kind of pinch point during the rut. And you kind of lump 98% of all hunting tactics at that time of year into one of those buckets. Do you do anything different than that? Is there anything outside of that that you think about or, or add to the recipe during the rut when you're getting aggressive with it? Um, one thing we haven't discussed is I, I hunt over a decoy a lot. I, I've killed some of my best deer over decoys. And, you know, I, if, if there's a way to put a decoy in the mix, I'm going to do it. But, you know, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The two, the two strategies you mentioned, Mark, are, they're just so proven and there's, and they're so effective. And, you know, I, I also throw in some calling, you know, if there's a time when rattling and grunting can be employed and yeah, you can do it too much, but it's also going to provide you with chances. Eventually it's going to provide you with chances or a chance you wouldn't have had you not used it. Same with the decoy. Um, you know, I've pulled hot, hot uh, bucks away from hot does with a decoy. Wow. That no way, shape or form would have come over and committed suicide had I not had that phony deer out there. Walked right away from, I didn't come far, but they were out of bow range initially and they came over to challenge this guy that didn't want, seem to want to acknowledge him. You know, the decoy is just standing there and it seems to really irritate those bucks that it's not responding in any way. It's not doing a head bob. It's not turning its head. It's the less it moves, it more it seems to make them mad. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, the, the random calling during the rut and the, and the uh, pinch points and go fawn areas, any place that animals deer are using, you know, feeding areas, uh, the edges of doe fawn bedding areas, all good. Those are the go-tos. I think they have been for a long time. Yeah. I think they, they will continue to be. I guess a lot of it comes down to executing on that though. Cause most people know what you're supposed to do at that time of year. Probably the harder thing is, is getting the small details, right? So knowing exactly where to, the right spot on the downwind edges to set up and then pulling it off, spending the time, getting up on time, being out there, not creaking the tree stand at the last moment. Those little things probably are what separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. You know, there's, we talk strategy and we talk, you know, game plan and all that, but there's something to be said for exposure. Just being out there, especially that time of year when the bucks are doing it. Um, you know, the old saying, you can't kill them if you aren't out there. And that's so true. And, yet people just, well, some, it's gotten better. People know they need to be out there now, but um, it, it's just so true. I, you know, I can't stress enough that we get that, that little window. Fortunately, I, I get kind of a broader window because I'll probably be doing two or three different states and maybe a Canadian province during the month of November. And, you know, the rut's going strong the very last days of November, like South Dakota this past year, I killed a good buck over a decoy and, I think it's 28th of November and that deer was, the rut was just going crazy. And the week before I killed a giant uh, deer in Saskatchewan and the rut was just starting, it was really going up there. So, you know, I get that luxury of, of hunting different geographic locations um, and getting a whole, almost a full month of rut hunting. Um, but there's nothing like exposure during that month. I'm going to be in a tree somewhere. We're in a ground blind somewhere. And that's the whole key to this. Uh, kind of along those lines, 
that's usually one of the things that's easier said than done, though, for a lot of people, especially if they're just getting into it. They hear, oh, yeah, I should take my vacation during that time period. I'm going to sit out there all day, every day, and I'm going to you know, put in 12 straight days or 14 straight days or maybe it's five straight days, whatever it is. Um, people quickly will find out that's that's not as easy and, and not even as fun sometimes as we imagine it's going to be when we're sitting here in February dreaming about the rut. Um can you can you just talk a little bit about maybe some of the things you've learned over the years uh, about the mental side of hunting at that time of year? It's geographic location as far as, as being out there, trying to be out there as many days as humanly possible during the month of November for me. Maybe even, I'm not, I mean, October can be good too. I've killed some, some of my better deer that last week of October as well. Um, but then it's pre-rut and they're on rub lines and they're very predictable uh, as far as where they're going to walk, not when, but where. Um, but uh, th- the thing is, you know, taking the vacation and, and for the average working person, which I was for a lot of years with my construction job, you don't get the whole month to, to run and gun. So that this is a very interesting, I'm glad you brought this up because the timing of the rut, and maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, but I think it's, it's so up in the air anymore. It just seems like we don't, at least here in Wisconsin and a few other places I hunt, you never know when that peak week is going to be anymore. Um, it used to be, it seems to me anyway, that it used to be later here in Wisconsin. Now it seems like it's earlier. Um, that's just me. Uh, South Dakota, where I killed that deer last year with, with bow and arrow, that, that's, later than normal out there i think i could be wrong uh, i've hunted all there for you know 12 14 years but it, it's just tough you can look at moon phase and i don't know all of this has a it plays a factor weather is a huge factor um if it if we get that warm weather in november that you know we do get occasionally it suppresses a rut without a doubt i think you'll agree with me on oh, yeah. that that's no fun when that happens oh no and it you know, it's it's just pretty much all nocturnal then, or maybe not even, you know, going to happen until later. But uh, I don't think there's a – I think it's it's different by geographic location, but I also think there's the moon phases, the, the weather, um, the buck-to-doe ratio, and, you know, there's so many factors beyond what some people would point to and go, well, here's why the, here's why the rut – was no good this year. Here's why the, you know, the rut just didn't happen here. Well, it happens every year. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't, I can't honestly and truthfully sit here and say, well, this is the reason that this happens. And even after all these years, I think it's a, it's a combination of factors that if they all, if one or two of them happen at the same time or three, it's going to affect the rut. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Regardless of geographic location. Is there is there anything, and this kind of goes back to something I mentioned a second ago, as far as weathering that, getting through that period of the hunting season with your wits about you? Is there anything you've learned? Just just uh, for me, I always think of it as a grind. Like the rut is a grind. It's it's going to be tough to get up in the morning some days. It's going to be tough to sit in the stand through the storm and make it all the way till dark. There's going to be days I'm like, dang it, I just want to sleep in today. Um, 
and and I yeah I try to push through it. I've I've though I've been kind of evolving a little bit, and I don't I don't know where you're at on this, but for a lot of years I thought you should hunt every single day that you can, the entire day that you can during the rut, every single moment. You got to just push through the exhaustion, push through everything else. I've just sort of started to rethink that a little bit, especially now with young kids and stuff. Um, maybe it makes sense to sleep in, maybe choose a day and say, you know what, I'm going to sleep in today t- and, and go out to hunt at noon instead because that half day rest and extra time with my family will make me that much more focused and that much more effective of a hunter the next six days because that I gave myself that and that's going to make me better because of it. Have you, do you have any thoughts on that? Have you gone through those same ups and downs and questions as you've, as you've hunted the rut over the years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's even more, you know, as I've gotten older, it's, it's, it's become even more difficult to, to do that grind. And it is a grind. Um, you know, now that I've slowed down on the production end and just, it's just picking and choosing some really good hunts to do. And of course, you know, a couple of those are going to be really good early season hunts that have been reliable for us in the past, but I'm still basing the majority of my hunting activity around the rut. You know, it's a time of year we all wait for. We can't, you know, that three letter word does more to stimulate guys than the other three letter word. I think <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> but um, it only comes once a year and it's like, got to be out here but what you said about just taking a day and and collect your thoughts and get your wits about you that i think that's extremely extremely good advice i there's you know when i was really running and gunning and doing this i there, there it was a real it was a real risk of a burnout factor and so i mean if you're not on top of your game if you're not as sharp as you should be when you're out there then why be out there take a day or t- even sleep in one morning. Just, just don't set the alarm clock or set your phone to, to buzz at a certain time in the morning, you know, and sleep in one day. The problem with that is as soon as you wake up, you're going to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, I've done it on out of state hunts where, you know, we're under the gun and this is, this is a pretty important deal. There's a lot of pressure we got to try and get 13 original episodes in the can each season. And you just have to take a day off. You just do. But whether it's during a rut or not, it's, it does catch up to a person. Yeah. And especially, you know, it's a little bit unique in a situation like yours where it's for the show or, or even for myself when I feel like that's part of my, my job as well. But when you're just doing this for fun, because it's how you want to use your vacation time, I still think there is a certain amount of pressure on a lot of people these days because so many of us take hunting so seriously. And we're so passionate about it. And, and maybe it's even getting a little competitive, people kind of comparing apples to apples with what'd you shoot, what'd you shoot, your buddy got this deer. I think there's probably a lot of people that feel this pressure during the rut. Like, it's got to happen. This is when it's supposed to happen. I waited all year for this to happen. And as soon as you, at least... This is my two cents. As soon as you start feeling that way and it goes from being a thing you're really excited about and looking forward to every morning and that you're thinking, golly, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I get to do this today. If you don't feel like that anymore, you probably should take a day off because if this is how you're spending your vacation time, this is supposed to be fun. It shouldn't feel like a crappy job you're going to in the morning. Um, but I think there's that risk sometimes if, if you take it too seriously. So that's, that's something I've been thinking about too. 
Yeah, and that's that's very well put, Mark. It's if it's if it's just become a grind and it's you you're really not having fun, but it's also you get to that state with your you know on the mental side of it because you're tired and you're burned out and you can recover. I mean, just taking one day off has worked wonders for me. You said it helped you. Mm -hmm. It's just one day. It's just one day. Um, And then you'll be ready to get after it again. It doesn't take much, but it takes a little little bit longer than that now for me, but not much. (laughs) It's Um, still still great. I, I think it's just so cool to have done it as long as I've done it. And it gets to be that time of year and, you know, taking a day off is hard. <laughs> yeah. That's great that it still gets you excited and, and amped to be out there. I'm, I'm glad to know that, um, that it's still just as powerful of a thing for you as, um, as it was 30 years ago. So that's pretty cool to know that it's not going to get old. No, no. You know, and I've, I've, I've been blessed. I've done it more, more years and more places with in more more situations, different situations than most people ever will. And like I said, I'm, I'm blessed to have been able to do that, but it's also when you do it to that degree, the burnout factor becomes way more um, of a possibility than, than just say, you know, the average deer hunter. And by average, I don't mean to demean anybody. It's just the guy that hunts, you know, the same tract of land, um, day after day. And that's the other thing is if you're hunting the same tract of land, maybe you need to take a little time off because if you're putting that much pressure on the deer herd as a whole, maybe you should just stay out of there for a day and let them regroup too. Yeah. It's not just us. It's the deer that we're putting the pressure on. That's a good point. I want to, I want to pick your brain on one more specific tactical thing. And then we should, we should probably wrap this up because I've kept you here a long time. Um, but you mentioned decoying. And that is something I actually reached out to uh, Pat Durkin uh, before this and just mentioned that we were going to chat and asked him if there was anything that he thought that I should ask you about because he's I know you guys have known each other and worked together uh, for a good number of years. And and he brought up two things. And one of them was decoying, the fact that you are a little bit unique in how often you use it and how effectively you've used it. Um, And I've actually saw in one episode of a show of yours, and maybe you've done this other times, but I thought I saw this and, and thought it was pretty interesting. You were actually set up with two decoys. You were on a fence row and you had a field on your left and a field on your right. And you had a buck decoy in the left side field and you had a buck decoy in the right side field. Um, I thought that was pretty unique and it made sense in the situation. I, I, I really like to hear a little bit more about that kind of situation and other situations where you use decoys um, and how you do that. Well, that situation, that's interesting. You should bring that up because when I, when I, uh, signed the deal with North American whitetail to do X number of hunts each year, um, the executive producer, uh, and the guy that's, that's running the show guy by the name of Layden Forrest asked me if I, they wanted to flash back to two of my earlier hunts, two of my favorite hunts all time from the days when I was with North American whitetail television. And that's one of the hunts I picked. Wow. And that, that situation, Mike Clerken was filming me and Mike's made his way around the industry now and become a name for himself. But we were, we were on this rut hunt in Illinois and it was happening and we just couldn't get anything close to us. And we found this setup that was, there was a winter wheat field on both sides of this um, brushy fence line. And 
there was a one lone white oak or red oak that was perfect for our tree stands. And so we got our stands up and Mike says, so where are you going to put the decoy? And I'm like, well, if I put it on that side and the buck comes on this side, you'll never see it. And I said, if I put it on that side, then the same thing will happen if he comes on this side. And Mike said, I said, you don't happen to have a decoy in your truck, do you? And he said, I do. (laughs) I said, that's problem solved. I said, we're going to do something I've never done before just in case that, um, cause they were just pounding this winter wheat, both sides of this brush line. And, uh, I killed that. Oh, he's a six by six. I'm sitting in my living room right now. I got him double pedestal mount, uh, because I killed a giant deer with a, uh, muzzleloader that same year in Illinois. And I got him on both on one pedestal, wow. but yeah, I'm sitting here looking at him. He's a six by six typical. It was probably, I don't know, 10, 10 30 in the morning. He just come cruising and he, uh, all by himself and kind of on a lope. And I got his attention with rattling antlers and I blew on my grunt call and game over. He came right into the decoy, but had, had we not had the one out on that side of the brush line, he wouldn't have seen it. He wouldn't have, he hadn't any reason to, you know, come up there by us. But yeah. So how are you specifically setting that decoy up? What's the angle? What's the distance? Uh, how are you thinking about the wind when you set in position? I'm curious about the details there. Well, the wind I want, <laughs> Obviously, I want the wind blowing from the decoy to me as much as possible. Quartering wind could be okay. But one thing I've noticed, and I don't know at all, but I've been decoying longer than just about anybody I know. And um, that bucks typically will circle to the head end of of a buck decoy. They want to be looking that thing right in the face. So what I do is I put it out about 20 to 25 yards, facing either directly at or slightly quartering towards my tree stand so that when the buck circles around to the head end, it puts him between me and the decoy, which means he's 15 to 20 yards chip shot. And then he'll stop. The first thing he'll do is stop and turn his head and look at the decoy, which gives me my opportunity to draw my bow and smoke him. It's, it's pretty simple really, but you got to remember that a doe decoy, typically they'll circle to the tail end because they want to sniff, you know, um, so I, I've not really used a doe decoy much at all. Um, but, uh, I will tell you this too. I, I queried North American whitetail magazine for an article I'm writing for, um, an early issue this year. And it's about early season hunting, of course. And I've killed two velvet bucks and another mature buck over a decoy in September. Huh. And one of the bucks, I'm looking at him here in my living room in another mount. He's a 170-inch deer that, without a decoy, it was September 7th, I think, I killed him. He, these deer were coming out to an 80-acre alfalfa field, and there were a dozen shooter bucks in the bunch, but they were all over that field. And we watched it a couple evenings prior to the season, and it's like, how do we go about so we put a couple round bales out there, had the rancher put a couple round bales out, and we put a ground blind in between them. And we had deer all around us. Nothing came within range. So the next night I put up a buck decoy and this buck and four other bucks came out of a river bottom a quarter mile away and came all the way across the prairie and some of the best footage we've ever laid down. And he came right to the decoy and I killed him. I mean, he's got 17 scorable points, basic six by six mainframe, just a brute of a deer. But the night before we saw him and he was challenging every buck that came into that field, this big deer would challenge. So the next night I had the decoy with us. 
So what's the scenario? And I think I'm I'm picking up on what the scenario is, but but lay it out clearly. The scenario in which you would pull out a decoy in the early season. Um, kind of. Well, for one thing, that first evening we sat there, Mark. We I noticed that they were not just that biggest buck. There was another big buck, and there were a couple other bucks that were big but built different. There was a lot of pecking order stuff. We sat there for two hours and watched because it's Montana and the deer are out early. Mm-hmm. And I told Matt, my cameraman, I said, we come back here tomorrow evening. That decoy is going to be up in this field. I said, there get, this is, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, the very first deer I killed for North American whitetail television back in 2003 was a big velvet 10-point Wyoming buck. And that deer came to a decoy I'd placed out. And I'll tell you this story. I remember when we got to where we were going to be hunting in Wyoming, Pat Reeve and Stan Potts, my co-hosts, were already there. I started unloading my truck, and I pulled that decoy out of the back of my truck. You, you should have heard those guys laughing and giving me crap <laughs> about having that decoy. Oh, Miller brought a decoy. Early season, oh, Miller brought a decoy along. Uh. I'm like, okay. Ended up killing a, a big velvet 10-point that in no way, shape, or form would have walked within bow range of our tree had that decoy not been there. Cause he, he's just checking out the new guy and the same with the, the box, the big buck, the, you know, when I killed him the second evening with the decoy, I don't know what he was going to do, but he was coming over to check out this new guy that he hadn't seen before. That's my opinion. I mean, they look at a buck and go, well, who's that? Mm-hmm. I don't know him. It's a curiosity thing that time of year during the rut. They want to, they want to thump it. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed and in, in from listening and reading and talking to other people who've had even more experience with decoys than me, something you often hear about is the the risk factor with decoys and that being sometimes does get really spooky about them. And so I've heard some people talk about, and I've tried to, to keep this in mind when I decoy, about employing a decoy in an area where you're not going to have tons and tons of does. Like the best case scenario seems to be an area that maybe has a lower deer density, so you're not going to have... 60 does out in a field and then have your decoy and have every group of does come by and spook and blow. Um, is that something you've seen as well, or do you not worry about does and you you're putting that decoy up regardless? Well, I will tell you this, this Montana hunt, I related to you with this 170 inch deer. There were 60, 70 deer in that field before those. I mean, there were so many does. One thing I've noticed about decoying consistently and does is does don't like other does. I never use my decoy as a doe. And I've seen that be consistent regardless of the time of the season. If it's early season, pre-rut, rut, does don't like other does. And they're suspicious of them. I don't know what it is, but I've used the decoys. I, I can't tell you the last time that I had a, a setup room because a deer turned inside out because of my decoy. I really can't mark. I, you know, I hear these things, but I know people think they got stuff figured out and maybe they, they want to use it as a doe, but I strongly encourage people that if they're going to use a decoy, strongly consider using it as a buck. It seems to be a lot lower impact on the behavior of the deer than, than a doe decoy. And I don't know what that's about, but I do know that those mature does don't like other mature does. And that's what that thing looks like. And it's not doing anything. It's not moving. It's not acknowledging them. And then they get suspicious and then they get angry and then they get suspicious again. So that's just been my experience, but I've been decoying, like I said, since, oh gosh, the early nineties, wow. long time. 
yeah, it's something I want to try more. I've always been afraid to to do it. I've I've been pretty conservative when it comes to decoys. Um, but I have I have once decoyed one and had a really cool hunt and killed one and have wanted to try it more and more. Um, do you do you do anything unique? to the decoy. I know some people put scent on them. Some people will put a little white handkerchief or something on the tail. So there's a little flick in the wind. Um, some people take one antler off. I, I've done that sometimes do one antlered buck, uh, anything that you do with your decoy that's unique or just standard throw out, throw out a small buck to your regular buck decoy and let her go. Yeah. I use the carry light and, um, there's, there's some, you know, because I used to work with those people and, you know, I've got three or four of them, but there are some other really good decoys out there, but I run it a hundred percent as a buck. The other thing is people tell me something's got to be moving on that thing. And I tell them, well, you know, how many years experience, 28 years experience of using decoys will tells me that the less it moves, the more it seems to irritate them, especially a buck that whatever he does, this thing won't even acknowledge him. And finally, it's like, I'm coming over there to thump you. You won't even acknowledge my existence. I'm coming over there to check you out. Now about the putting something on the tail, you know, deer grow up as babies. They grow up following mama, watching her tail. How many flicks mean danger? How many flicks mean everything's cool? I don't know. You don't know. So putting something that moves in the wind on their, on their butt has, you know, I've heard of people, you know, one guy told me he had a big buck coming in. This has been years ago and he had a, um, he had a white hanky or some tissue or something uh, taped on this decoys, butt. and the, the first time it moved in the wind, the buck kind of looked at it and then continued to come in. And then it started to really blow and flick. And that buck looked at it, turned and trotted off. So I don't know how many flicks mean everything's cool. Um, there's something wrong. So I'm not going to have anything on that decoy that I can't control that might mean this, or it might mean that. And that's just my opinion. I, you know, I've been doing this a long time, like I said, with the decoys, but, um, they grew up watching, walking behind mama, watching her tail. Those, those flicks mean something, but we don't know what that is. Yeah. It's a good point. It's a good point. Well, uh, Greg, this is this has been a lot of fun. I've I've been talking your ear off here now, so I want to let you get to the rest of your day. Um, I guess I would I would ask you one last thing or one and a half last things. Um, <laughs> number one, is there anywhere you could direct people if they want to learn more from you or pick up your books or anything like that? Can you tell folks where to find more Greg Miller resources? And then number two, are there any other resources out there that you would recommend to folks, whether it be a a book, a show, uh, a person. I don't know. I, I always am interested in other folks' recommendations for where you would turn to, to, to learn more or to, uh, to get more of this kind of stuff. Well, unfortunately all my books are out of print, but, uh, on a positive note, uh, my son, Jake is, who is, you know, my business partner was, and still is actually, you know, we just gone in a diff- different direction with our production company, but we're, um, we're probably in the process of not probably we're in the process of getting my uh, third book, rub line secrets, which was my bestseller of all. We're going to have that redone in hardcover. So I don't know the timeline on that. Um, I'll be doing seminars at the uh, Ohio deer and Turkey expo uh, the third weekend in March and at the Wisconsin deer and Turkey expo in Madison, 
I think it's the first or second weekend in April. People can hook up with me there and I can give them more details. Um, but uh, as far as anything interesting, uh, you know, I would say that I'm really happy to be, you know, as far as, you know, going forward, I'm really, I'm really happy and, and uh, that I'm back with North American whitetail television because, you know, as far as the visual medium, that's kind of where I got, not kind of, that's where I got my start, you know, and then blossomed into my own television show and all that. So um, I'm, I'm glad to be back with them. And Gordon Whittington, like I said, bought my very first magazine article way back in 1986 and he's the editor of North American Whitetail to this day. So it's great to be back working with those guys. Yeah, that's great. They, uh, they're they one of the first magazines I, I was able to publish an article in, too. So uh, I have some, some strong, positive associations with what they've been doing as well. So yeah, that's good right. stuff. You know, yeah, it is. And they're, they're a good group to work with. They're, you know, it's I know the print medium is kind of, had some hard times lately, but it's, it's good to know that, you know, that they're still buying the North American whitetail magazines and, and reading them because that's, I mean, there's a lot of online stuff, but it's, it's great, you know, cause I got ink in my veins. I've been a journalist for a long time and it's that, that, that thing doesn't go away. Yeah. I still love having the physical copy as well. I got a stack of them sitting right next to me. I can put my hands on them right now, right next to me. So uh, it's still nice to be able to open a page. <laughs> I'm sitting here at my, my favorite spot on the couch, and I got a whole stack of them on my end table here. The, the coolest thing for me right now, Greg, is I've got a two-year-old son. And every morning now, he gets up in the morning, and, and when he's laying there in bed, he just starts saying, Mama, Dada, Mama, Dada. And then eventually I'll get up and, and go grab him. And the first thing he'll want to do is he will run to the couch and he will grab a magazine off of the coffee table next to the couch. And it's always a deer hunting magazine. So it's usually North American Whitetail or Peterson's Bow Hunting or something like that, Bow Hunter magazine. And he'll grab it and he'll make me flip through the pages with him and he points at everything. And sometimes he'll say, oh, or he'll say big buck or he'll grunt when he sees a picture. And that's that's how my days start right now. And uh, that's about as cool as it gets. And it, it wouldn't happen if we didn't have real deer hunting magazines still. So they're pretty special. Yeah, cool. It is the coolest. So cool. Yes. Well, Greg, I I just want to thank you again. And um, please, please stay in touch. And if if we ever can convince you to come back, I'd love to chat with you more. Yeah, that's not a problem. I got got way more time to do stuff like this now than I did when I was running and gunning 13 different states in four weeks. So Yeah, I hear you. Well, uh, thank you again, Greg. And best of luck uh, with your off-season scouting and coming up into the season 2020. Thanks, Mark. And that is a wrap. Big thank you to everyone out there for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this one. Stay tuned for much more to come with the podcast. Stay tuned with the Back 40 Season 2 show coming back at you later this year. And make sure you're following Wired to Hunt over on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all of my live updates throughout the week, throughout my life, all the interesting things I'm doing that maybe I don't get to share here in the podcast. They're covered there. So check it out. Good luck outside in your scouting efforts, your trash cleanup efforts, your shed hunting, whatever it is you're up to right now. Enjoy it. Thanks for being a part of this community. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart 
out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. 